Hi, this is Terry Manning, and you're listening to Jim and Mike Talk Music. special guest with us today. He's a rockabilly musician, music producer, and engineer who's worked with Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Joe Cocker, Lenny Kravitz, to name a few. He's also a professional photographer. Let's all welcome to Jim and Mike Talk Music, Mr. Terry Manning. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> it's a large studio. Appla- yeah. <laughs> applause. Thank you. Hello, yeah. audience. Yes. <laughs> yes. So how are you doing today? Doing great. Good. Great. And you're in Texas. Is that I'm true? I'm in far west Texas, in the desert, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. Great. We see behind you uh, a studio uh, looking looking great. Not just the typical uh, living room. A lot mm-hmm. of people, you know. No, no, no. Right from your living no, room. I've got an actual mixing and overdubbing and mastering rooms here. Oh, wow. Uh, do we call you Terry? Do you got other nicknames people call you? Like, you know, the man, Manning? Terry, d- that... Uh, I've been called many things, but most of them we, we don't repeat. So <laughs> Terry, that's fine. Thanks. Mike and I went on your website and you've got a very extensive resume. Mm-hmm. So we can't possibly talk about everything. So we've, you know, picked and... Good. No. Because <laughs> that'd be three hours. You know, uh, for our listeners, oh, yeah. a lot of people don't, you know, uh, maybe your name isn't a household name to some people, but uh, I was thinking about it. They have heard... Uh, your unique sounds. They have heard what you've put into the music. Everybody has heard what you've put into the music because they've, you know, unless they don't listen to music, unless they're deaf. Yeah. 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 So they, if they don't know you, they know, they know what you've produced and engineered and, and such. Just the way I like it. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of people behind the scenes always uh, aren't known. And that's just fine. I think with most because everybody doesn't want to be a big famous star in mm-hmm. front of uh, NBC yeah. cameras and things, but um, mm-hmm. uh, it is really an honor to have made a music that people know and love over the years. So that's that's a great mm-hmm. thing. That's a great part of it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, in 2013, you were inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame. Can you tell us a little bit about the Rockabilly Hall of Fame? That's is that's in Texas, correct? Well, actually, two of them. One's in Jackson, Tennessee. It's okay. the International Rockabilly Hall of Fame. And the other, I think, is in Texas. But uh, I was uh, inducted into the International Rockabilly Hall of Fame. They had called and asked me if I would uh, come play a show there for their every year they have a show and an induction of different people. Mm -hmm. So uh, I got my band together and we worked some stuff up, some cool old rockabilly things, (laughs) something else by Eddie Cochran, stuff like that, you know, (laughs) and went to play the show. And at the end of it, they said, oh, and here's a surprise. And they walked out with this big certificate and everything. It really was a, a very shocking to me. It was a surprise to be actually inducted in people with like Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis oh, wow. and wow. things that I've always grew up loving, <clears throat> stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that must have been a great day. What year, what, about what year was that? Or when was that? I think it was 2013 ish. Um, okay. Yeah. 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. What were some of the artists that inspired you to pick up a guitar? I mean, I, I'm assuming, Boy. I'm going to guess like there's probably many, but probably the Beatles, Eddie Cochran, you mentioned, mm-hmm. Buddy Holly, Elvis. Uh, like, what were you, You've... what were you listening to at... way back? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Well, as a, as a, even before teenager, uh, growing up, I just, my dad would, uh, did a radio show that is a minister and he did a mm-hmm. every week, a religious radio show. Mm-hmm. And I would go with him to the station sometimes and just sit there and look at all the equipment and hmm, uh, this is really exciting, <laughs> you know, watching microphones and things, transmitters and stuff. It was really fun to mm-hmm. see. So, uh, I got a radio for Christmas and I don't know, nine or 10 or 11 years old, something like mm-hmm. that, and started turning it on to the AM radio stations and hearing mm-hmm. Buddy Holly, Elvis, Eddie mm-hmm. Cochran, Gene Vincent, uh, so many early, early things. I, I guess that dates me, unfortunately. But Yeah, uh, we, we remember uh, starting out with uh, <laughs> 1230 AM radio, WEX. Yeah. Uh, yeah. AM. <laughs> Yeah, AM radio. There wasn't really, yeah. they didn't play rock and roll on FM radio yet. That yeah. wasn't until probably mid 70s or early 70s maybe yeah that's but, when um, we, we yeah. were we started listening mm-hmm. yeah in yeah so i would just bop along with uh wear my ring around your neck by elvis or teddy bear or mm-hmm. hound dog all those things and buddy holly really got to me i just loved buddy yeah. holly Love he, mm-hmm. Elvis was great but to me buddy buddy holly and eddie cochran were the ones that really were just deeply rocking somehow to me mm-hmm. and well, of elvis course was I more, elvis was more managed you know you know people were yeah, managing, it was it was managed you know, more was, produced more yeah. uh planned i guess and uh and elvis wasn't writing the songs oh, i yeah, mean i yeah, love elvis yeah. he was great but buddy holly wrote his own songs yeah uh and it would it sort of came it seemed to come from the heart to me mm-hmm, right and i just really got into that plus growing up in texas and he was a his boy oh, yeah. from Lubbock, yeah. uh, so and West Texas, my place. So uh, it, just Buddy Holly was king, absolutely. Was it? Wasn't it amazing though the amount of songs that Buddy Holly wrote? I think he wrote like in a short, songs. short oh, yeah. time. And he was, what he could have done, he, you know? Oh my God, he was yeah. really only around. I like to say about eighteen months. I mean, you could depend on when you say he started, yeah, but yeah. it was obvious when he stopped. But. Uh, not much more than a year, year and a half. Oh, he wrote yeah. all those songs, had mm-hmm. those hit records, and he was gone at what, 22, 23 years old? Yeah. Jeez, mm-hmm. that was just a, absolutely amazing. So you, you were able then as a 10 to 12 year old seeing inside a studio, you know, it's, uh, you know Chris, uh, your dad doing a Christian broadcast, but seeing the equipment, knowing what it can do, uh, starting out with uh, an engineer ear to start with, you know, the quality. You know, that sounds bad. That sounds good. This is what you do. I mean, even with uh, even with talk radio, uh, be it. Was your dad uh, spinning tunes, too, or was it talk radio? No, it was all talking talk yeah. radio, mm-hmm. doing a, his sermon of the week or yeah. something okay. like that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, there would be an engineer at the studio there, the radio studio, and they would, you know, be testing mics and make sure the levels were right and make sure they got a good quality right. uh, uh, signal to the transmitter and everything. So that was just a an introduction as you're saying to mm-hmm. the technical side of it and i was getting the musical side of it from the radio so mm-hmm. I, I i had no choice i was yeah. i was i was hooked <laughs> yeah <laughs> another musician that died 
fairly young was Bobby Fuller. And yes. uh, you, now you got to play with Bobby Fuller. Like, how well did you yeah, know I, Bobby? I knew him really well. I call him my first real mentor, mm-hmm. not counting my dad at the, at the radio yeah. station, but my first mm-hmm. music mentor. I went to a, a high school, a junior high school dance we had. They, the teacher in homeroom one day in, I guess, what, the eighth grade, seventh grade, the eighth grade, something like that, mm-hmm. said to the class, we're going to have a dance. We're going to learn social graces. Every boy in the class <laughs> will ask a girl in the class to come to this dance. And the parents will chaperone. The teachers will chaperone. And I thought, oh, God, a dance. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but they said, we're going to. I have band play. I had never seen a band live. Yeah. And I thought, oh, a band. Okay, let's go see what that's like. So I asked the girl right in front of me in class. <laughs> the this nearest girl, girl in the class, fortunately. Yeah, the nearest girl, that's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tap her on the shoulder. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it was. She would already uh, was mad at me because she was really cute and I would kind of mess with her tapper here and there mm-hmm. on the back. I mean, yeah, yeah. and her yeah. pull her hair or something like that at what 13 14 years old and she had already stabbed me in the knee with the pencil once so. oh wow <laughs> but she said yeah i'll go to the dance so we get the dance and the band is bobby fuller's band mm-hmm. now this wasn't just a band they were really really good i mean they were not just a local band they were top class within two or three years they were playing all touring all over the country with hit records yeah, but yeah. at this time they were still a local band playing a junior high sock hop or whatever it was. So I didn't really, I tried to dance for a minute or two. My mother had tried to teach me all week and very embarrassingly, but I said, you know what date you sit in the corner. I'm going to go up and talk to the band. Yeah. Yeah. So I went up at the end of one of the sets and asked, went right to Bobby and said, Mr. Fuller, sir, would you mind if I sat in with your band? And he just laughed and, Instead of being just, oh, kid, leave me alone, please. He <laughs> said, I tell you what, have you learned some songs? And yeah, I've learned Peggy Sue and, and O'Donna. He said, come on up. And he handed me his guitar and he, wow. gave the, he got the other guitarist's guitar. They, they rest of the band couldn't have cared less. They just mm-hmm. went and took mm-hmm. a break. But he, me and Bobby sat up there and played Peggy Sue and O'Donna to my junior high class. Mm-hmm. Wow. And at that point it was it was all over. Okay. Yeah. This is it. I'm a star. <laughs> this is what you want to do. <laughs> now so, we don't yeah, know, you're just you we don't know if you that impressed the date, but that didn't really matter. She maybe she doesn't wasn't into music, mm-hmm. but uh that that's amazing. Well, I sh- I, I should I don't really uh, always say this, but the date, her name was Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Nix. And she sat right in front of me. She later changed her name, well, dropped to use her nickname of Stevie Nicks, and she joined the band. So that was, uh, believe it or not, but, me and Stevie Nicks sitting there trying to dance to Bobby Fuller. <laughs> it was the Stevie Nicks? Or? It was the Stevie Nicks, yes. Really? Oh, my God. She lived, she lived in El Paso. Her, wow. her dad was in the Army, and they would, they would you know, go all around, so... Wow. Anyway, that's just a bizarre, bizarre junior high school dance. Wow. Now, were were you in a were you in a band at the time, or was that your first public performance? No, I didn't even have an electric guitar yet. I oh, only okay. had a, a Montgomery Ward's acoustic that my parents had given me for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I learned a few chords, especially Peggy Sue in yeah, D. Right. 
And that was just just great. So, yeah, so, so you're practicing uh, them on your acoustic at home. You're singing or was it A? It may have been an A. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I spoke over you. I didn't hear that. Oh, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Uh, yeah. in, insane. More amazing if Stevie got up there and sang, too, too you know? Oh, my God. Wouldn't and that bump, have been? Bump Bobby oh. off is what you're saying. Just, just, just him and Stevie. Yeah. <laughs> but. No, that's great. B.I. inspired her to sing. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Oh, very, very. But, popular. yeah, within a, within a year or so, I had uh, moved on to high school. Austin High School, Go Panthers, and mm-hmm. uh, several other guys that were in the neighborhood and were in the high school were also interested. And we did put a band together, called it Terry Manning and the Wild Ones. Mm-hmm. And we even recorded an album in the in the bathroom of the back house of our drummer. It's funny little, you say a single mono. <laughs> it's funny you mono say reel to reel. That Jim a mono reel to reel. Jim and I were just talking about it. Yeah, when I listen to that, it says it came out in 2012, but I, I'm pretty sure that's probably when it was put on Apple Music. Yeah, that's when yeah. it was released. It recorded in, yeah. I hate to say it, 1963. Ooh, I guess oh, okay. 62. I was okay. guessing 62. I swear I was. You're wrong. <laughs> so in my notes, I, have, I was going to ask you if that was recorded in your bathroom or your kitchen. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> no, it was. It was in the bathroom. Our yeah. drummer, who didn't even have a drum kit yet, we had to borrow it sometimes. He played, uh, tapped on boxes and, mm-hmm. and uh, tambourines and things. Oh, okay. And uh, right. I sat on the toilet with the, the lid down <laughs> and yeah. the mic was out. So we had echo. It was just really Someone great. Someone was in the tub. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was the drummer in the tub? <laughs> it wasn't even a tub. It was just a shower. Oh, okay. Yeah. As a drummer, I've played cardboard box. I've also played my right heel down on a stage, and it the stage was a little weak, and so it was booming. So there, you know, it works. That, there that's you go. Great, great story. You know, it's all, all you need. It's all about the rhythm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not exactly the tone. It is the rhythm. <laughs> Now, how long did you know Bobby Fuller? You knew him up until he, he died? Uh, so let's see. It would have been about, well, he, he left El Paso at about the same time I did. And he went to Los Angeles. I saw him mm-hmm. for the last time at the uh, Skyline Bowling Alley on Dyer Street in El Paso. And I was there with the church youth group to go mm-hmm. bowling. And I saw him sitting over at uh, where they sell uh, hamburgers and hot dogs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, there's Bobby. And I went again, hi, Mr. Fuller, because <laughs> I had been phoning him and talking to him. And okay. how do you write a song? What is it? And I'd go to his house. He had a home studio in the 60s. What could it have been? Well, he had bought Ampex recorders. He bought mm-hmm. Telefunken microphones. I mean, he built an echo chain. He was for really going wow. for it. Mm-hmm. So I would go over there and, and watch and say, well, why did you push that button? Now, what is how is what is producing? What do you mean mm-hmm. when, you, you know, just all these dumb naive kid questions and he was always just lovely and kind and explaining things i just can't ever say enough good things about him as a human being to to give of what he had already learned and he was he was young i was like 13 or 14 and he was maybe 19 or 20 so yeah he was young too but uh, about the time he left to go to california with his band to try to get a record deal my dad moved us to Memphis, Tennessee. So uh, I guess for a, a couple of years, I knew him pretty well, something like that. But mm-hmm. um, 
after that, we corresponded by mail up until the time he died, unfortunately, wow. was murdered. Sorry to hear that, yeah. So he gave you time, even as a 14-year-old, and him being 19, oh. 20, whatever, he's given you time. And because he knows uh, your your enthusiasm, right, and your interest and your ability to play guitar with him and such. I guess. I mean, he must have seen something or just... I may have just pestered him to death and he couldn't yeah. <laughs> couldn't avoid me. I don't know. Yeah. But <laughs> a great story of but yeah, he had his own exactly. He had his own record label. He had his own uh nightclub called the Rendezvous. He had, had it was a teen club with no alcohol. Mm -hmm. He and other bands would play. It was just amazing. I was in awe of this. Yeah. I thought adult, but he was really a kid, you know, just yeah. a, mm -hmm. an older kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was just in awe of someone who had made so much of himself already. He was just, he was unstoppable. And when he got to California, he signed a record deal, recorded Fought the Law and several other songs, had yeah. top 10 hits all over the world. I mean, wow, you know, what a, yeah. what a, what a guy. He, he had the power. I remember a little side note. I remember, you know, in, in the 80s, there was, uh, clubs like that, you know, the underage clubs, the non-alcoholic clubs, really bringing some live music uh, mm -hmm. to those who want to dance or just sit on the sidelines and listen, those who want to play. And, you know, we don't we don't have as much. We don't have that anymore. You know, I don't I don't really think that's happening. A great place for the the 14 to 20 year olds to go because we experienced well, we, well, that. we wouldn't know if they had them. Because we're not going. No, there, but right? we've got kids. We've got we've got kids. We're not going. But yeah. but uh, it's it's a that in itself uh, was something special. You know, be it, be it uh, Christian influenced or not. You know, or just under twenty one. Uh, that's a, that's a thing in itself that's special. Yeah, uh, there must be some of that today, I guess. But uh, there's also as many bands or, or, or live gigs at all with right. the the DJ thing and rap and all changing things. Yeah. But. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just about to produce a new band, and they're playing good gigs up in Wisconsin. So great! When you started at Stax Records, you basically walked in there. Tell us the story and, yeah. and asked for a job. <laughs> I, I did. I I had by this time gotten a Telecaster guitar, playing electric, mm -hmm. and uh, I I took it one day to school because from El Paso about Stax Records because I had bought. Uh, Rufus Thomas records or the Marquis last night, some very early Stax records. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had seen them and I knew there was a record company in Memphis, so I couldn't wait to go to that place. So I took my guitar one day, put it in my locker, locked it up real good so it wouldn't get mm -hmm. stolen. And after school, took the bus as far as I could get, close as I could get to Stax records and walked the rest of the way, 926. McLemore, Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and knocked on the door, rang the bell, whatever it was. And the regular secretary was either at lunch or off that day. And a, a woman named Deanie Parker was on the front desk. She was actually uh, an artist, Stacks artist, and ran one of their, their the publicity department. Mm -hmm. So she was on the front desk and she kind of laughed a little, said, come on in, son, you know, let's Let's uh, hear what's your what's your spiel. So I said, well, I'm I'm going to write, I'm going to record, I'm going to sing, I'm going to play, I'm going to produce, I'm going to engineer. What have you got? Just give me a give me a job. Mm -hmm. And she talked to me nicely a few minutes, and then said, well, you probably ought to come back in a few years because I was 15 years old. Oh, oh. Wow. She said you should probably come back in a few years and uh, you know get go learn what what some of the things that you want to do, and then when you come back, maybe we'll have a place for you. So I was a I, not unexpected 
would be a response, but still, I was a little sad. So I, I just was picking up my guitar and about to turn and, and leave when uh, a guy walked in, tall guy, handsome mm-hmm. guy, and he said, uh, hey there, son, there's a guitar case. What's in your case? And I said, it's a Telecaster, sir. And he said, well, come <laughs> lunch to me. So I sat down on some chairs uh, with this guy, and he said, I play a Telecaster. He said, my name's Steve, Steve Cropper. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, good, Mr. Cropper. And I, I didn't know who he was yet. Mm-hmm. But, it, of course, he was the a guitarist for Booker T and the MGs, a mm-hmm. songwriter, a producer of many of the Stacks uh, records. And uh, he sat there, asked me what I wanted. We talked. I played the guitar a little bit. He said, yeah, nice, nice Telecaster. It's a 1952, by the way. I still have it. Wow. And uh, he said, well, can you run a tape recorder? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've run tape recorders. Mm-hmm. So he took me back to their tape copy room in the hall. Where they went because there were no even not even cassettes yet. You know, there was yeah, not yeah. certainly nothing to do. You, you had to take a tape or cut an acetate to, to send somebody a copy. So he said, we copy things here. We, we do master copies to send overseas or copies to take home for the artist or various things. So after school, <laughs> I actually a day or two a week, whenever, would go over to Stacks after school and copy tapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would, whenever I could, I would sneak down the hall, peek in the real studios and watch what was going on. Look at the engineers, see what they were, where they would plug the mics, what bus- buttons they were pushing, you know, just yeah. trying to glean how it all worked from looking, but being mm-hmm. very quiet. Not, mm-hmm. yeah, I knew not, don't disturb things. Yeah. But by doing that, walking around, I, I was kind of got to be known by the stacks people. They would see me, you know, and see me in the tape room or whatever. And one day, uh, somebody, an engineer, had not showed up for some demo session that was mm-hmm. going on. And a, someone came in the hall and saw me in the tape room and said, you, engineer, aren't you? I said, yeah. Yeah. I said, well, come down <laughs> no, here and record this thing. <laughs> so I went in and pushed a few buttons, and all of a sudden, the sound came out. And they said, oh, great, hit record. And mm-hmm. I was an engineer. So wow. it yeah. just morphed from there on into more and more also started my band local i'm talking too much sorry no no we weren't <laughs> my local <laughs> definitely not talking too much go ahead i joined a local memphis band uh, my good friend for life joe gaston who was a bass player also went to central high school go warriors in memphis mm-hmm. and uh, i uh, uh, one day he 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 said you know i i hear you you know play music and stuff our keyboard player is leaving our band. Would you want to join the band and come try out for it? So I said, sure. I went home to my dad. You got to get me a keyboard quick. <laughs> so we went down to a music store on Highland Avenue, Bull Swanger Music in Memphis. And he bought me, well, I looked at several things, and he bought me a Wurlitzer electric piano, which little did I know at the time, was an all-time classic iconic instrument, but Mm-hmm. That's what I had. Couldn't afford the organ, but they had a very old used Wurlitzer piano. And I got that, tried out with the band. It was called Bobby and the Originals. And we, they said, yep, okay, you could be in the band. So there I was in a band. They went to, they had just previously gone to a studio called Sonic that was run by Roland James, who was the former guitarist for Jerry Lee Lewis. He had his own little studio, little mono or stereo, whatever demo studio. And the band had just cut a demo without me. I wasn't in yet. 
to try to get on a TV show called Talent Party, which was run by the DJ at WHBQ radio and TV named George Klein. He was Elvis's best friend mm-hmm. and uh, the top DJ at the time in Memphis. So everybody wanted on his TV show. So they had this little demo tape, but the, uh, they, the band didn't think it was quite good enough sounding technically. So our manager at the time, it was the gentleman who had sold me the Wurlitzer piano at the music store, he took it to a friend of his named John Fry, who had a home studio in Memphis. So we all trekked over there to John Fry's home studio in Memphis. John had a great home studio with Ampex recorders and Neumann microphone and great equipment for the time. You wouldn't have believed it, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we started hanging out there and he, he called this studio Ardent. Ardent Studios, and it turned out into a many, many, many year friendship, association, career. So I was working at, well, he decided a few couple of years later to put in a real studio on for rent and rented a building, put in a big studio with a spectrosized board and, and scully tape recorders. And so I got a job at Ardent Studio as the first employee with John Fry. And I was working at Stax and at Arden, and boy, I was just wow. totally immersed in <laughs> Memphis music. That that's that's amazing. And was that by the time you were a little older? Because at Stax, you yeah, I would be 15. seventeen, <laughs> eighteen, maybe <laughs> seventeen, eighteen. <Yeah>. Wow, <laughs> to get I was grown ex- up by then. To get right. that experience that oh, early on yeah. by eight by eighteen years old, I had worked on recorded or worked on overdubs, whatever records that were uh, billboard chart yeah yeah at 18 years old you were just just, at the right place at the right time you walked that day you knocked on that door wow well if steve cropper hadn't walked through and said hi who are you right uh if our if our manager hadn't taken taken the tape over to john high to get it eq'd and compressed you know basically mastered Mm -hmm. mastered a tape for the tv show which we did get on the tv show Mm -hmm. and terrorized it but Mm -hmm. but, uh, (laughs) it was just an amazing thing so within two or three years there were big artists coming to the studio Mm -hmm. stacks artists artists all over tennessee missouri arkansas mississippi whatever up to arden studios and i was working almost 24 hours a day wow all sorts of things Wow, as an eighteen-year-old. Now you talked as about eight, the seventeen, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen-year-old. Mm-hmm. You talked about the world at Sir Piano. So we, you know, we jumped from guitar right to keys. So uh, you know, somewhere in there, you you had learned. You you've learned to play piano. Well, my mother was a piano teacher. Well, there you and go. She taught. She taught everybody but me, and I refused. Yeah. I'm not having <laughs> lessons from my mom. <laughs> yeah. So she she actually sent me to another piano teacher who could. Mm-hmm whap me on the hand or tell me what to do. Yeah, but, you just didn't uh, want to I have learned. Mom. Yeah, I know how it goes. No, I, it's crazy because I should have done that because she was yeah. very good. She played piano in church, of course, piano mm-hmm. and organ, and mm-hmm. really re- read music fluently and knew everything mm-hmm. about it. I should have taken more advantage of that. But with your mom, you don't think of it like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, <laughs> my dad played piano organ. We had a pump organ. He tuned piano for oh. years, and I never learned. It just, I thought, yeah, I, yeah. I thought, you know, I was cool. I was beyond that. <laughs> exactly. That's how you do. Yeah. Boy, a pump organ. Oh, they're awesome instruments. Yeah. We had two different ones. 
Hey, uh, speaking of keys, good segue into the Moog synthesizer. Now, this innovation, you know, it brought new sounds. You, it's like it's a whole different instrument. Uh, can you tell us about the Moog and maybe meeting Robert Moog, uh, possibly in New York, learning from him? Absolutely. But very first thing is yes. it is pronounced Moog. It is. Oh, okay. I it is. Wrong, I wrong, Jim. No, it is Moog. And I asked Bob Moog himself, Robert Moog, when okay. I met him and went up to his place, how do you you say it and you said it's moog and if you'll notice learn one thing today it's how to pronounce it properly moog (laughs) a a few years later he he came out with an instrument called the rogue the moog rogue and he did that so that people would (laughs) hopefully learn oh yeah that how it was pronounced of course there's a brake company called moog that makes brakes for cars i think Mm -hmm. and the other things that are pronounced moog oh right right i just bought i just bought some wheel bearings for my mini and it's uh it's a moog m-o-o-g yeah yeah (laughs) right pronounced differently it's different so yeah thanks for clarifying that uh, tell us your. <laughs> tell us about learning learning that, and uh, and what year is this? Uh, just I love I love history, so I love to know about what year you're talking. I know, and I, I for years I wouldn't say the year name. Oh, oh yeah, oh, you don't have to. Hey, hey Terry, you you, but no, it, it now it's so wide. It's it's all <laughs> water under a bridge. It was 1968, mm-hmm. and I uh, had heard about these new synthesizers coming out, and a guy named Moog Moog whatever I it, I didn't know how to say it yeah. yet. Uh, in New, in upstate New York, sir, that uh, that was making these things, and a couple of guys came over uh, from a jingle company, who had been there, and to uh, get some things uh, recorded because he had a studio too mm-hmm. in his factory. Mm-hmm. So uh, they said, "Oh yeah, we can tell you how to get there." So I I flew on Mohawk Airlines, uh, which they also called it Slowhawk. I found out, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> to Ithaca, New York. I flew out of Newark first and then flew on Mohawk to Ithaca, New York, and yeah. then got a taxi to uh, Trumansburg, New York, okay. which is where Bob Mo had his factory. And I had called in advance and set up a, 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 a week or whatever, however long I was there, close to a week appointment with him and went in. And, uh, he knew I told him I wanted to le- I want to learn everything, anything yeah, musical yeah. or photo- photography. I just want to learn, learn, learn it. Or airplanes. So anyway, I um, I went in, met him and his assistant Daniel, and they had a studio. And I just started every day taking lessons in how to program, learning from from the basis, the very basic of it, which is starting with an oscillator that makes the tone, and then the filters, the various things that change the tone, and then the keys that make it stop and start when you want it to do, and the ADSR uh, that, that tells it how long to play and you hit the note and when to cut off, just all the things about it. Everything was very individualized at that time. It's what uh, they're, today they call them the modular mogs, but uh, it, every single thing was its own little box component mm-hmm. in this big wooden rack. And you actually had to patch everything together right. from so the oscillator to the filter. Oh yeah, there was no presets at all. Nothing oh. like a preset yet. Every sound started one or more oscillators being mixed through the mixer, and yeah. you had to do it manually. Everything. Yeah, you're working everything and, as you're playing it, as you're doing this song. You got to remember how to patch this stuff together and how to how to do it every time, right? Oh yeah, you, yeah. And every time you finished a sound, 
and wanted a new sound, you had to take it all, oh, uh, wow. unpatch everything <laughs> and start from scratch. And it sounds like a lot of work and it was, but what it was, was an amazing lesson in sound uh, synthesis and production, where sounds mm -hmm. come from. So even though now I'll just open the computer back there or wherever mm -hmm. and pull up a, a virtual instrument and yeah, you can just yeah. pick, take the patch oh, yeah. and you start playing it. Still, I, I remember every time where those sounds came from, how they got there. And I think mm -hmm. it's, it's just like learning engineering on a totally manual board, which I did console. Mm -hmm. That's the way I learned. There was no automation of any kind, but just learning how it all works and why it, why it works and what you have to do to get to a final goal was just a great lesson. I wish more people today could learn that way mm -hmm. because you learn so much about just the, the ground from the ground up of sounds and where it comes yeah. from. Right. So you were you were had to go deeper into uh, I have an electronics degree. So so going deeper into the the frequencies, right, knowing and and the lower what the lower frequencies do and how they can travel and all this such. Yeah, oh, yeah. And of course, Bob Mo and his assistant, I forgot his last name now, but it's Dan, Daniel. Anyway, they uh, both knew because people like Bernie Krause and other and Walter Carlos, who became Wendy Carlos. Uh, all had been there or were learning from Bob Moog around the same time or mm -hmm. a little earlier. So uh, they were very well versed in, in teaching it from the ground up. And it was just, uh, it was just an amazing, I can't, I can't believe it now looking back. Yeah. I can't believe I got to do that. And you spent how long uh, with uh, Bob Moog? It was uh, almost a week, probably about five days. That I stayed mm -hmm. in Trumansburg, stayed at some little hotel there, the only hotel in town, <laughs> and uh, went every day and just learned. An interesting story is that one day I was, uh, Bob uh, Bob said at one point, I'm, I'm going to go down to the sandwich shop and get some sandwiches. What do you want? So I mm -hmm. gave him what I wanted. And he said, I'll run down there, but I'd like for you to stay here if you would, because REA Express, now that's the company that was the big delivery company before Federal Express mm -hmm. uh, and UPS and things like that. There was a railway express agency. Uh, REA said, REA is going to be delivering a box and I want to be sure that you're here to receive it. So I said, sure. Yeah, I'll just wait. Sure enough, here comes the, uh, the REA guy with the box and mm -hmm. he puts it down there and said, would you sign here? And I looked down at the box and the return address was G Harrison, in at Abbey <laughs> wow. Road, uh, three Abbey Road, whatever, uh, uh -huh. London, England. I said, wait a minute. Wow. And the, as soon as Bob came in, I was just jumping around. This is G. Harrison, is that? <laughs> he says, yes, yes. It's George Harrison's keyboard. He thinks it's defective, which it's not. <laughs> because there's a tuning there's a tuning problem. I've, the of, uh, George has, has bought with the Beatles, bought a big modular Moog, the, uh, a Moog that, like the one I re, uh, subsequently bought, mm -hmm. said, and he thinks the tuning problem is with the keyboard, and it's not. It's the modules. They're just not stable enough yet. Mm -hmm. But I'll give him a new keyboard. And I said, well, when I buy mine, which is why we're there, mm -hmm. so I want this keyboard. Wow. So he said, sure, take it. It's fine. <laughs> so I put up my, a little, my initials on the bottom of it so I could tell. I did buy <laughs> right. a, a Model 3C Moog synthesizer. And mm -hmm. when it came, I 
couldn't wait to open that box. And sure enough, there was my little mark on the bottom of the keyboard. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd gotten the Beatles keyboard. That's, a, that's you, an, you, a great story. Do you still have it? Unfortunately, no. Oh. Uh, it wasn't, I, I keep saying mine, but it was actually Arden's, Arden oh, okay. Studios okay. Mm-hmm. synthesizer. But uh, I was the guy who was there to program it and open up with it and to help mm-hmm. people, you know, who wanted to rent yeah. it. But uh, John Fry later decided that when a new company called ARP came out, A-R-P, came out with their synthesizers, he had a chance to be the ARP dealer for the Mm Mid-South. And so he said, well, I'm going to trade, sell the Moog, and we'll get an ARP. And I was just heartbroken and still am. So instead, we got this stupid ARP that was never nearly (laughs) as good, never sounded the same. Anyway, yeah. no, it's gone. I do know where it is, though, that original mm-hmm. one. A friend of mine actually has it, and it's in a in storage in Memphis somewhere, but yeah. I'll probably never be able to have it. Yeah. yeah. Hey, the story. Plus, itself. I have I have the plug-in. I have the plug-in now. Who needs it? <laughs> <laughs> the story itself is valuable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. some of the albums you um, you produced and engineered but uh, I'm interested in I love Led Zeppelin as you can see I'm wearing Led yeah Led. yeah yeah I'm about to get a tattoo you know the symbols yeah for each excellent line. excellent uh, symbols with an s not symbols with a c yeah 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 to a symbol with a c <laughs> tell us about the first time you met Jimmy Page or how that came about well, the band that I was playing in, I mentioned earlier that previously was called Bobby and the Originals. Mm-hmm. Had, there, it turns out there was another Originals out somewhere, oh, so okay. we couldn't use that name to, to have a it's record. Not out. very original, we, really. No, it wasn't original. <laughs> but uh, corded a single at, at the early John Fry studio, the home studio, Ardent Studio, and they were about to release it on Ardent Records. And so they changed our name. We and we had to come up with a name. We it's the hardest thing in music is to get a band name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we went through all, all sorts of names. Nobody liked anything. And one day, my dad suggested because Bobby Lawson was the lead singer, had been Bobby in the originals. He said, mm-hmm. "Why don't you just call it Lawson Moore?" And I just, oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. But I mentioned it, and it ended up being the name. And so our name was Lawson and Four More. We had a record coming out and they got us a job on a to open open on a tour that was coming to Memphis. It was called the uh, Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. And it was playing uh, the show we played was at Skateland Frazier 
<laughs> where everybody skated. <laughs> wow. And but it was, you know, it was a big auditorium sized thing so they could yeah. set up a stage and have bands. Yeah. So we were one of the opening acts, but one of the acts on the show was Gary Lewis and the Boys and I wasn't that mm-hmm. interested. But another act was the Yardbirds and I was okay. really interested because <laughs> I loved the Yardbirds. They were yeah. my favorite band at the time. But I just couldn't wait since I could now be officially backstage to go meet the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. So I did. I went back and met them. And uh, Jimmy was not actually in the band yet at that point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeff Beck was still guitar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I, but I met everybody. We talked backstage and they said, hey, we're coming back on another tour uh, in a couple of months. So, you know, come out to some of the shows. So I couldn't wait. And I went to two shows. One of the shows, uh, the final of those two was in Murray, Kentucky. It was at Murray State University in their gymnasium. So uh, I couldn't wait. And I got to the show, went backstage, and there was the new guitar. Well, he actually was playing bass at the time, okay. Jimmy Page. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, he had Jeff Beck had just left the band a couple of days earlier, wow. left his Esquire with Jimmy and said, you play lead. So mm-hmm. Jimmy was quickly going over all the songs backstage on lead guitar and the the rest of the yardbirds were going i wonder if jimmy page can pull off lead guitar we'll mm-hmm. see so- <laughs> oh i don't know well he wasn't the, he i wasn't, mean they knew yeah no he wasn't the jimmy page we know now yeah yeah know. no but he was the top session guitarist okay in london he okay. played on all kinds of hit records, as did John Paul Jones, mm-hmm. as session musicians. But uh, Jimmy wanted to be in a band, wanted to, to really take the yards much farther. So, uh, of course, the, the band wasn't really worried he wouldn't do it, but it was yeah, kind yeah. of a, a fun thing. They're going, hey, can you play lead guitar yeah. there, Paige? Yeah, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so that's, I went right up. Just... At Skateland, by the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you play Skateland? So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very important gig <laughs> every gig's important but anyway so i went up to jimmy and introduced myself and said hey and i'm working at six records and from memphis tennessee and arden studios blah 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 just talking everything and he was captivated because he loved memphis music mm-hmm. sun records uh, of course, Elvis, Jerry Lee, Roy mm-hmm. Orbison, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, all of those great things out of Sun Records. Yeah. And he loved Stax, the, the early Axe Records. Yeah. He mm-hmm. loved Booker T and the MGs. He was a big Steve Cropper fan. So, uh, And it's all right there, right nearby. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we're just a few miles. So we're in, in Kentucky, just uh, down the road from Memphis, really, or up mm-hmm. the road. From London. So uh, uh, I watched the show, went backstage afterwards, and we had it really just hit it off right away. And uh, I said, hey, you want to ride back to Memphis? Because the bus was about to leave for Memphis, mm-hmm. the band bus. And I said, uh, you want to just, I'm going there too. You want to just ride with me in the car and we can talk more? I said, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. <laughs> so we rode through the night, three, four, five, six hours, however long it is from Memphis to there. And I immediately drove to Arden's studio in the middle of the night, probably three or four in the morning, and said, here's my studio. Want to have a look? Sure. Mm-hmm. So he came in. It was just me and him. And I wow. got all my guitars out, that, that same Telecaster, the 52 Telecaster, and some amps. And we just played a little and talked. And Wow. So he, he, <laughs> he became inured to the fact that, that I was a professional in the business. I did work at big studios, good studios on mm-hmm. real records. So it, it was just a, a sort of a, 
uh, a joining of the minds thing that was happening there. And then a couple of years later, uh, he was calling me up. He had not finished Led Zeppelin three yet. And he said, mm-hmm. Hey, you're CEO where I was. Can, can you finish Led Zeppelin three for me? And I said, yeah. no, I don't want to No, leave me alone. No, I didn't. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, of course you say that. <laughs> but all along, he had been, he would mail me cassettes of the first Zeppelin album, the second album, and things mm-hmm. as so it's cool. all in progress and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think? Here's what we're doing. And I would go, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's all right. But uh, no, of course, I loved it. I was a fan immediately from day one. And mm-hmm. so he came mm-hmm. with uh, Peter Grant and whoever was needed for an overdub. Because they they had a tour booked in the U.S. See, they were mm-hmm. supposed to record and finish the third album, and it was to be released for the tour. The tour okay. was to promote that yeah. album, but they hadn't finished it. So uh, it was mostly recorded, but a few things left, and then not mixed and not mastered. So he said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come between shows. We'll start playing the tour, mm-hmm. and as soon as there's a day off, I'll fly in. And we'll bring anybody that's needed. Peter Grant, the manager, will always come just mm-hmm. to watch over him. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, so several times between shows, probably, I'm guessing, about six different days, but on off days of, of tour days, we'd fly into Memphis, I'd go out to the airport, pick them up, drive over to the studio. And I had got with John Fry and just blocked the studio out. Mm-hmm. Nobody came in the studio that, yeah, that whole yeah. time. Right. Over the um, part of, I think it was August of 70, maybe, but about um, close to uh, two two weeks or so, because uh, they were playing shows and then would record. So it was days lost in the studio. But whatever that was, mm-hmm. nobody else came. We just locked yeah. it out completely. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. John, the owner, didn't come. Yeah. And we would just work, 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 work all through the night, whatever it took to do whatever an overdub and especially on the mixing then yeah we'd mix maybe maybe two songs a day uh mixing and then mm-hmm. come back and mixing again a couple of days later you know yeah and once we finished it all edited the album i sequenced the album put it all together and we took it over to a place called mastercraft that mastered to vinyl and uh, the mastering engineer there and i mastered it with Jimmy's input of, you know, EQ and various things. Mm-hmm. And we just did the whole finishing right there. I'm thinking about the sequencing. Uh, you do mean order of the songs? Sorry. Yeah, that's the order. Because mm-hmm. when you mix, you just mix one song at a time. Oh, of course. And yeah. you mix it mm-hmm. to a tape. And then later you have to take all the various mixes and put together on a reel in order. Mm-hmm. So yes. that the mastering engineer <laughs> wow. can actually p- start playing the the side you usually yeah. you did a side one and a side yeah. two on a reel, reel. to reel mm-hmm. and on a reel to reel tape yeah. a yeah. quarter inch tape mm-hmm. and uh, uh the the mastering engineer will then start that side one tape and master all the way through onto vinyl on to, through to the end mm-hmm. and wow. in between the songs put a push a button that that makes the little groove that separates the song so it's yeah. wider yeah. a wider groove okay. so you can see what, how many songs are on it and things. Yeah. So thinking about the production of, of Led Zeppelin three there with you and Jimmy Page, what uh, was there anything different? Was there any new sounds or was there any new techniques, something different on that album? I mean, you're just going for as good as you can possibly ever get. Uh, each, each, everything you do, you know, you're going to do as good as it of can course. get. Is there any, anything different or new that was uh, 
you know, going back in your mind there? Well, it, you know, the most of the music I was working on at that time would have been uh, B music, Stax music, mm-hmm. or some rock music, rock bands, local bands, or a couple of bands came up sometimes from Florida or from different places to but record. Not that heavy, maybe. Yeah. At, at Arden, but nothing of that. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, there was no band in the world as good as Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah. And has there yeah. been yet? No, mm-hmm. there has not. So <laughs> all of a sudden, going from mostly other styles of music, I would do some country music, you know, things like mm-hmm. that, whatever, yeah. to the biggest band in the world, the mm-hmm. already the biggest band. In, and of course, the Beatles and Zeppelin are all both yeah. the biggest bands in the world in a different yeah. way. So yeah, yeah. different when way. When I right. don't mean to yeah. ever demean the Beatles when I, when yeah. I say that about mm-hmm. Zeppelin. But there you are with the biggest band in the world, the heaviest music so far in the world, and the four best musicians in the world, counting Robert Plant as a musician, the four best musicians in the world at what they did all in band one time. So yeah. was it different? Yeah. 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 It was different in that way. That just the, the, the power of it, the, the virtuosity of it was just incredible. Now I was extremely, extremely lucky already to be working with some of the best musicians in the world. Yeah, so I yeah. don't want to take away from, oh, I was oh, yeah. doing R&B music or something like that. We're yeah, talking right. Booker T, Al mm-hmm. Jackson, Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, uh, Reggie Young, uh, Willie Mitchell, and, and the whole crews at, mm-hmm. at, at Stax, High Records, mm-hmm. American Studios, some of the greatest musicians in the world there. But they're different style musicians than oh, what yeah. Led Zeppelin were. You know, they yeah, were just they were playing a whole different style of music. Completely different category, and certainly you're don't uh, you know talking about Led Zeppelin, you're you're not taking away from the Beatles or any of those others you just mentioned. I mean, it's just so completely right. different. It gives me chills just thinking about having completed let's just say one song, you know, just with, with Zeppelin there. And it just gives me chills thinking about like, wow, this is good. <laughs> like, how how are you gonna say that? Like, mm-hmm. this is good. <laughs> well, I remember very well to this day. When the, when, even though I had heard it on cassette a, a little earlier, Jimmy had sent, but when the first album came, the first Zeppelin album, mm-hmm. I was sitting with Richard Roseborough, who was a drummer, a very accomplished studio drummer, well-known, uh, played with Big Star and, and a lot of other people. But uh, we were sitting together and we put the, 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 the tone arm down on the groove. And when Good Times, Bad Times started... Mm-hmm. Immediately, the world changed. Yeah. On an axis, it spun around, and yeah. Richard, who was a great drummer, just went, "What the is that? God!" And just, "Whoa! Listen to the bass drum. Listen to right. this syncopated bass drum. It's not. There's nothing uh, on beat there. Yeah. Nobody had ever heard that before. Uh, well, yeah. Gene Krupa." Yeah, would yeah. do things like that, mm-hmm. jazz drummers, which yeah. is what mm-hmm. Bonham wanted to be. Gene Krupa yeah. was his big idol of his life. Mm-hmm. But in rock music and local rock bands, whatever, thing, just ba-da-da, the power of the very, very first mm-hmm. immediately changed everybody. Bands yeah. started playing differently. The, mm-hmm. the radio was different. Everything was different from that second right. on. It said, so you can to do get... this. You're allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know it was a thing. <laughs> To have Jimmy sitting there with me mixing Led Zeppelin three and hearing uh, and just the power going and then the incredible depth of the acoustic numbers and the beauty that 
that album changed Zeppelin. The third album changed that. Maybe the first album and the second following up on that changed mm-hmm. the world rock music. But the third album changed Led Zeppelin. All of a sudden, they could be seen as musicians who could play anything. Mm-hmm. They weren't just yeah. all power and screaming. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Robert Plant could sing beautiful, soft, slow things yeah. like Tangerine. Yeah. And, and there was just incredible what is what acoustic things. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! I mean, it, it's just incredible the the depth that 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 happened in the the real. I know I sound like I'm saying this for myself because I was involved with three, but I, I'm not. I'm saying it as a fan of it right. and of the band that that they wouldn't have had the incredible longevity to this day and the depth of so many styles and types of songs that they could do as a rock and roll band had it not been for that sudden break that happened on the third album it yeah. really shocked a lot of reviewers it shocked a lot of people this isn't led zepp what happened to that power but they right. didn't want to just beat no offense to a deep purple yeah, or album black album. sabbath or ozzy osbourne yeah. or anybody but they didn't want to just be a heavy rock and roll band. Well, that album yeah, right. is the, the least Page. like rocking album yeah it's sweet sweet yeah sweet yeah. sounds and, and compared to the first two yeah yeah mm-hmm there's yeah, not yeah. That many... now they put some of that. They mixed those things in Variety. on all the later albums, but yeah, but that's yeah. where it sort of was born, and it yeah. came from Jimmy and and Robert going off to Wales and sitting mm-hmm. in in cottages in the in the in the in the country with no no other influences but an acoustic yeah. guitar and that's just sweet. saying, "Let's make music. We're we're making music." Sweet, sweet. We're gonna change gears here. Um... That, forward a little bit <laughs> jumping ahead a little bit thank you for those amazing stories jim so you helped uh revitalize the compass point studios mm-hmm. in the bahamas and i'm interested in uh hearing about living and working there mm-hmm. you, you were there for 20 some years that's a long time <clears throat> oh my yeah. god yes <laughs> i lived i still have a house in the bahamas it's rented okay. out now but where, where i lived for 25 almost 25 years but yeah compass point uh had been started by chris blackwell yep. who of yep. course was the founder of island records mm-hmm. producer of bob marley uh you too. signed to his label mm-hmm. o cocker steve winwood you too i mean the yep. list just goes it's insane yeah. the mm-hmm. incredible musicality of artists that he signed but i had worked uh with chris at one one album a little known album it's called smith perkins smith and they were out of muscle shoals and was signed to Island Records, and it had, they had brought it up to Arden in Memphis for me to mix. So I took it uh, to be turned into the list. Would you mind just taking it to England? So, okay. So I took, went to Island Studios and offices on Basing Street in London, and uh, this, this, I saw this guy coming down the stairs, and everybody said, oh, that's Chris Blackwell. Mm-hmm. So, oh, hi, Mr. Blackwell. Good to meet you, you know. And mm-hmm. so we had, we had knew of each other and had been – not friends, but uh, acquaintances, because he, he released a lot of albums. So this one mm-hmm. thing wasn't the big thing in his life, of course, mm-hmm. at that time. But uh, years later, now, we're, that was back in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. Yeah, early 70s. So uh, years and years later, I was wanting to, I thought I would get out of Memphis because the weather is so hot in the summer and so cold mm-hmm. in the winter. And I yeah. thought, well, let's just do something different, you know. So mm-hmm. I was looking around. I had thought about moving to the Cayman Islands mm-hmm. and had actually gone there and met with people 
but they the government there was just didn't understand what I was talking about, the things that needed to be done to make a real functioning studio there. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, ah, oh, it's not going to work. And then uh, just thought of Compass Point. Ah, oh, there already is a studio in the islands, mm -hmm. a well-known one, a really good one. Ah, oh, and it's Chris Blackwell. So I called <laughs> Chris up and we talked about it. And he said, yeah, it, it was doing great for a while, but then a guy named Alex Sadkin, a great producer and engineer himself who had been running it, had been killed in a car crash down there. Yeah. And uh, he produ uh, Alex produced one of the Foreigner albums. He produced mm -hmm. uh, the Thompson Twins, several acts, really, yeah. really good guy. But he had died. And so Chris said, I don't have anybody to run it now. Uh, would you want to go down there and we'll go in partners on it? And I said, well, yep, well, let's see. So I flew my plane down to Nassau and went over and met the, met the people at the studio who were local people. But there was nobody. I mean, it was in disrepair. They, it mm -hmm. had just since nobody big foreign had been coming in yeah. from the U.S. or England or wherever for a couple of years since the guy had died. Alex had died. Uh, it, the locals had just kind of let it go because they don't mm -hmm. no offense at all great people in the Bahamas, but you've got to understand the international record business. You've got to understand what a studio needs to be to get yeah. a big act to come in. Right. It's got to be just right. Yeah. Right yeah. equipment, kept up, everything maintained, have all the instruments at hand. So uh, I looked around. The studio was great, but one room had that had a, a flood. Something had happened on the roof and it had flooded. Down, it just left the room sitting there with covered with magazines and old equipment and things. It was all mildewing, and another room was this, and another room was that. It's just a mess. So I got with Chris. We sat at the front desk at, at uh, Compass Point and talked about it. And uh, at one point, the keys were there. They're not Chris's keys because mm -hmm. he just comes and goes as he needs, mm -hmm. you know, in and out of wherever. This was the keys of the studio man manager at the time and the keys were sitting there on the desk and at one point after he was we just talked a lot he said yeah i think this will work and he picked the keys up mm -hmm. and he threw them across the room and he said if you catch them and i oh, instinctively just reached up and grabbed the keys <laughs> wow. as you do you know oh yeah. and he said up oh, i guess we're partners it wow. it's your studio <laughs> oh okay <laughs> so uh i moved down there cleaned up the whole place like crazy uh used some equipment that was there already but bought in a lot of new gear brought mm -hmm. all of my own equipment because i already had studio two studios uh so i brought a lot of good gear down and really just made it a world-class place again mm -hmm. yeah. and um it it was already a well-known worldwide known studio with acdc and the rolling stones and lots mm -hmm. of people before mm -hmm. i got there mm -hmm. uh but we when we got it back uh going it was just just incredible the artists that would come in lenny kravitz bjork celine dion mariah carey uh just I, rem i can't even yeah. begin wow. to say artists it's so yeah, amazing we, we saw the list it's uh it's like a couple dozen or something it, almost it's it's there's so many people right there uh yeah al green crash test dummies you worked a lot with lenny kravitz Is yes that, uh, yeah, and you wrote a uh, not well, it's a photo book, I believe. It's a uh, Living with Lenny. It's a book of photos. Well, actually, we never released that book. You did. Uh, we were talking. Hey, no, right. no, I've got about 
almost a hundred photographs of Lenny over the years and mm -hmm. uh, some really, really good ones, if I do say yeah. so. But we decided not to make uh, that we were working on an actual book, right. Living Lenny, and he was writing the foreword for it and the pictures would be there and I would have stories about the studio. But we we canceled that, actually. So we, I don't know why that mm -hmm. still lined, but we didn't do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably my error. For, I, I thought that book was no, out. no, no. That's yeah, okay. That a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. But I did. I've worked very with Lenny. We're almost like cousins. We're really close okay. friends, <laughs> and we've worked together quite a bit. And uh, I did the whole five album that had yeah. Fly Away on it with mm -hmm. him at his place in New York, and finishing up at Compass Point. Fourteen okay. month yeah. album there of recording. Yeah. Yeah. You played the toy piano on one song. <laughs> right? Is that true, Terry? Uh, uh, it is true. It is yeah. true. I got a little toy piano, one of those little red things with, mm -hmm. with about eight keys on it that the kids get, you know, mm -hmm. it on great. that one song. Yeah. That's great. You've worked with, obviously, a, a ton of incredible people. So many artists. But is there anyone that you didn't get to work with that you would have loved oh, to work with? Yes. <laughs> a couple of things. There are two things that make me so sad to this day. Mm -hmm. The first was Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. I got an offer to engineer a Jerry Lee Lewis album and record it in Memphis at Ardent at one point. Mm -hmm. And I, I was a huge fan. I loved mm -hmm. and still love Jerry Lee to this day. He's one of my all-time heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, he had just had an incident where a gun had gone off in a, a studio where he was working. <laughs> space player had been shot in the oh, leg wow. Wow. and uh i was scared of that and i yeah. just thought oh gosh what if i got shot so i, I turned that down and I'm so mad at myself was it his this gun? day i i don't know for sure i wasn't okay. there there were different stories some mm -hmm. people say it was some yeah. people say it wasn't okay. but anyway uh that it happens, but hey, Phil Spector, so what? It happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shouldn't say that. That's not fair to Phil, I guess. But anyway, uh, so but I all, turned all down that. that. I didn't get to work with Jerry Lee Lewis. There, there are mm -hmm. three yeah. more, in fact. Another was that the Beatles called up, uh, uh, Brian Epstein called up Stack Studios uh -huh. and said, if we can keep this completely quiet, I want to bring the Beatles to Stax wow. and record at least a song. Oh. This was when they were doing um, either Rubber Soul or, or Revolver. I think Revolver. Mm -hmm. I'd have to look back to see which one. But uh, Al Bell, who was president of Stax at that time, and I was working with him. He's the wrote I'll Take You There, produced the Staple Singers, worked with him very closely at Stax, came to me and said, look, you're our popest guy here. So... Mm -hmm. Will you engineer the Beatles if they come to record at Stacks? I said, eh, I don't want to. No, I didn't. I said, sure. I'd love to do that. No, I didn't. So, uh, eh, was that? So I said, yes, this is exciting. And I was so excited. Well, it, what happened was the one of the partners at Stacks, a woman who was a, one of the founders, got so excited by it and couldn't help herself, mm -hmm. she leaked it to a local oh, newspaper. Wow. Yeah. A story came That's out, fair. the Beatles may come to record at Saks. And as soon as that got that in the press, yeah. Brian Epstein canceled this. I'm sorry, we can't come. It's not going to happen. Yep. Yeah. So I, I missed out on that. And that song was to have been Got to Get You Into My Life, oh, which yeah. if you listen now to it, you'll hear George Martin attempting 
a Memphis mm. horn like section okay. on it. Yeah. Which is very good, but it's not what the Memphis horns it doesn't sound oh, like. Oh yeah, that. yeah, the it's horns on that song. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I, I would have been working on that. So I missed out on that. Uh, another one was uh, I got I was working in England, lived there for quite a while and worked out of Abbey Road for a year. But I uh, had a whole schedule set up all the way through the year of maybe it was 86, 85, somewhere along in there. And I had kept putting a band off, a band called the, the Sluggers. Okay. There was a great band out of Nashville, and they I kept putting them off and said, uh, I can't do it this, this month. I'll do it next month. So finally, I had told them, Sluggers, I promise you on my life, I absolutely will be doing your album around the th- uh, Thanksgiving, November area of 86, mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And they said, you promise? I said, I promise. Nothing will stop me. I will be there. I promise we'll do this. And wouldn't you know it, a couple of days later, I get a call from ACDC's manager at the time, Steve Barnett, and he wanted me to go to Compass Point, which I had never been to yet at that time, mm-hmm. and produce some a couple of songs on ACDC for the movie. It oh. ended up, ACDC, it ended up being uh, the Who May Who Things. Okay. So I, I, I but I, I had to turn it down. I had promised mm-hmm. all yeah. my life. Yeah. I could not. <laughs> renege on a promise yeah. to friends so i missed out on acdc and the last wow. one was i was uh, got an offer to produce ozzy osbourne a solo oh, album wow. mm-hmm. and uh, i met with him and and uh sharon at their house in london mm-hmm. and the, the kids too were out mm-hmm. swinging on swings with the nanny <laughs> but uh ozzy was great i really liked him sharon was all to just total business oh, really yeah. together yeah. woman i mm-hmm. thought this this could work yeah. And then I went down to uh, HMV Rectop in London and looked at the previous Ozzy Osbourne albums. Mm-hmm. And I saw and I read all this stuff about bats being bitten. Oh, yeah. And the, yeah. the, Bite the head off a bat. I just yeah, looked yeah. at this and said, oh, that's not my style. I, yeah. I don't think I, mm-hmm. so. I turned down that doing oh. that album and I could kill myself now for doing mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, I love Black Sabbath. I love Ozzy. I yeah, love was, all this stuff. The demos were great. I was an idiot, just an absolute was, idiot. Was that one of the first solo out, like um, Blizzard of Oz? or I don't know uh, which one it was, but it would have been around around yeah. 80s, 85, yeah. 6, 7, along in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so it would have worked. You you would have worked well with him and the family. Oh, it would have uh, been great. Musically. It would have been yeah. great for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Uh, um, uh, I think Randy Rhodes was still around at that point. Yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 So God, yeah, he it was on, great. Uh, I think he was on the first two albums. Yeah. Randy Rhodes. Yeah. Terry, you have so many excellent stories. Uh, it's amazing. We've talked about music so far, but I want our listeners also to know, like when you said you flew down to the Bahamas, you flew yourself down. You're a pilot. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I yeah. owned, I've owned two airplanes and, uh, mm-hmm. I I had a my, my just beloved Piper Cherokee Arrow mm-hmm. uh, that I used to fly all over everywhere. I would go see bands. I just fly myself. Wow! There, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, so nothing it's surprised. Just, it's fun. It's fun, exciting. Uh, but I, I will say this, and it's part of what got me in trouble not accepting Ozzy and stuff. But I'm a very straight person. I I don't drink. I don't do any mm-hmm. drugs. Mm-hmm. a vegan for many many years of mm-hmm. a vegetarian all the way back to the 60s mm-hmm. i work out i mean i just don't 
do a lot of things you associate with rock and yeah. people. Yeah. Right. And to be a pilot, you need to be that kind of person. Oh, yeah. right. Look at right. what happened with the Aussie in- incident, for instance. Yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, it wasn't Aussie's fault. But, uh, yeah. it, you can't play around with airplanes. So yeah. uh, that's that's why I say, oh, I would go fly myself to see bands. But mm-hmm. it was all very straight ahead by yeah. the book, filing a flight plan, doing everything just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That helps us get to know uh, you as a person. I'm thinking back, uh, Jim, to the 80s when we used to read Rolling Stone and Spin, mm-hmm. and then I grabbed a hold of uh, New Musical Express. You were a journalist for them, and I think that was uh, probably before uh, the mid-80s. Yeah, you, you were doing – so this was reporting or photography or both for NME? Both, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I loved NME and would ha- subscribe to it in Memphis in the 60s. and. Oh. Uh, uh, one time, uh, somebody was coming. I know it was Dusty Springfield coming to mm-hmm. Memphis to record, which mm-hmm. became the Dusty in Memphis album and Son of a Preacher Man, or wow. biggest hit on it, yeah. and everything. And uh, I contacted NME and said, Hey, Dusty's coming. And they, oh, great, because we can't afford to send a reporter over there for it. Right, right. So I went over, Dusty interviewed her, uh, took photographs of the session. Uh, uh, wrote a story about it, and it was printed in in, in ME. Uh, and after that, they were calling, oh, this so-and-so is happening. So-and-so is coming. English acts coming to the States. Mm-hmm. Would you go cover yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would yeah, just so do you that. Were, and... You were the reporter here in the stateside then. Yeah, that's what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, in the, in yeah, the mid okay. six, mid to late yeah. 60s. Yeah, amazing. So uh, Jim and I are just so impressed. I, I just I can't get over it. Um, uh, I, I dabbled in photography a little bit. And so you're a photographer. Uh, you, you've done it professionally uh, for of people who are uh, musicians, famous musicians, but also other things. You've got a couple of books out. People can check that out. You know, I, I guess I can't pass up hearing about the uh, MLK story. You're actually, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I one mean, of the last photos. Yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't go, <laughs> we can't go on this afternoon without at least, uh, at least touching on that. But our listeners can check out uh, your other photography uh, when you go, they go to your website. But what about MLK? Yeah, I'll give. There's two. There's two websites. There's TerryManning.com. Okay. which is obvious. But then there's one called the manninggallery.com. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, on that one, it's tr- totally devoted to uh, photographs. There's probably 150 or more photographs on there. A lot is art photography, what, what it's called art photography. I don't call right. it that, but people do. But it's just things I like. It's things I see, things I want mm-hmm. to isolate 
great fest of the world and just mm-hmm. put on display in a place where people can see it and go, oh, I would have walked right past that. But I see the beauty in that thing mm-hmm. now that you right. I mean, they, they don't say that physically, but that's the yeah. the, the, the concept right. uh, to take a thing. Photography that, as that, art. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I yeah. see that that mm-hmm. looks like a painting perhaps or mm-hmm. i'd also do i have done portraiture and i have done album covers and things like that but what what my big love is the is just the art photograph a single well here's one sitting right here i'll just hold this up all right so you can't really even tell what it is but it's just part of a a small building with mm-hmm. the sky behind it where the i just loved the color the coloration of it and the composition yeah. Right for our listeners, it, it separated is, uh, it from where it is. Right, so for our listeners, that okay. was a uh, a stucco, uh, almost like a Spanish architecture uh, stucco, and yeah, the yeah. bright blue is on the building as well as the blue sky up above. Yeah, right. And I was just struck by how the colors match on that, and just I don't know, just things like that. It could be anything. Yeah. Um, and there were 25 people standing around this thing and nobody was looking at it. Yeah. But if you <laughs> yeah. put it in a wall, they might go, oh, what? I like that. Where, where is that? You were standing by it. You didn't see it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's scopedophilia, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Taking something. And there is and, a, and, and what, I wit- what I witnessed on your gallery on your uh, page, I saw there is a lot of uh, you like a lot of that uh, bright, uh, rich color. And a lot of them. Yeah, I love deep in, especially where uh, certain times of the year or certain times of the day where the sun's at a certain angle. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. if you get the the camera just right and the sun uh, is the, the the light is polarized, it can just enrich enrich. Uh, I don't know. It's hard yeah. to talk about. It's like <laughs> dancing about architecture. They used yeah. to say, but. Yeah, and those, right, who, I've done those, this. Who are, those who are photographers who know about uh, with a, a polarizer, you take away the glare and you have a real richness without that glare of the angle of the sunlight uh, hitting your eye. And so, yeah, you bring out a richness uh, with that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've I've done this. I've done photography as long as I've done music and as intensely and it's as important as music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've worked in it professionally, so it's not just a hobby type thing. but Back in the 60s, a very close friend of mine was uh, William Eggleston, Bill Eggleston, we called him then. He became Mm -hmm. Sir William uh, once he became the best-known color photographer of the 20th Mm -hmm. century, I would say, and really invented modern color photography. Uh, But we were just – he was a little bit older than of course, but still mentoring and, and, and just kids hanging out doing things. So I would always have a camera with me, or almost always, except in the studio, rarely, because I don't go to the studio to take photographs. You you go to do your job. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I have a few session pics. But anyway, in the mid-60s, well, almost late 60s, 1968, uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Would come by Stax Records. He was a friend of Stax Records. Mm -hmm. Al Bell, who was the eventual president of stacks and eventual owner of stacks uh, was a very close friend of dr king's they worked together uh in in the civil rights movement but uh one day <clears throat> al bell called me up early in the morning and he said hey you uh 
mentioned to me a couple of days ago, you just got your first new car and it, you know, I, I saw it. It's really nice. And I said, yeah. So we're taking that car out to the airport and help pick up Dr. King and his, his people and baggage and everything that's coming. <laughs> they were coming in town for the uh, sanitation workers of Memphis strike. Uh, the sanitation workers felt that they weren't being uh, respected and paid correctly. And just, you know, they were looked down on almost all black and right. it was a pretty much a racial thing. So uh, Dr. King had taken up their cause and their that they called it was uh, I am a man. So they had these mm -hmm. I am a man marches and right. the, the, the garbage workers were saying, I am a man, too. You know, mm -hmm. treat me like a man, not a garbage yeah. worker. Yeah. And it's it's a very right thing to have done. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I said, yeah, Al, I can I can go help. So a couple of stacks people took their cars out and they got a couple of taxis and we got bags and everything so i'm walking down the hallway wondering where they'll be and i see a bunch of people coming i said oh there's Doug King there now i had seen him in the halls of stacks and yeah. he had seen me probably around stacks we had spoken but he i wasn't a friend or anything like that yeah, right. i just was one of the stacks guys the young white mm -hmm. guy at stacks yeah. one of them <laughs> so um i'm walking down the hall and they look up and uh jesse jack there and uh, uh, Ralph Abernathy's there. Uh, uh, Ernest C. Withers is there. Several people in the retinue of people that were with company Dr. King in the day. And this was the end of the days, unfortunately. So I walked up and I said, hey, I've got my camera with me. So I just took some photographs mm -hmm. and I was as close to Dr. King's face. The ones you see on there are not cropped. It's not, yeah. it's not, not pulled forward not in any way. Mm -hmm. No, not a, it's a normal lens mm -hmm. held, I mean, within six to eight inches of his, his face, you know, just holding it up and shooting photos. Amazing. Amazing. And I took several pictures and then I told, uh, well, of course, that night, uh, that was in the late morning of April the 3rd, 1968. And then I went to the studio, uh, I had a band to pick up at the airport a couple of, a little bit later from Missouri, got them, went to the studio did this uh and i thought uh whether he's having a there's a rally tonight uh, at a church there's a, some speeches mm -hmm. i'll go down there and this was at temple in memphis late in the evening of april 3rd and dr king wasn't scheduled to speak there's some of the other people were speaking the church was full this church had skylights all the way around in a square around the top of the ceiling that night it was a severe storm came through it's lightning and thunder crashing like crazy and they everybody wanted dr king they kept saying we want doc we want dr king yeah. so they ran to the lorraine motel because i had driven down there i left that part mm -hmm. out he didn't get in my car at the airport but i took okay. some bags mm -hmm. and a couple of people and we mm -hmm. drove to the lorraine motel let everybody off so somebody ran from the mason temple a few blocks down to the lorraine Dr. King, he came back. His speech was not planned, no mm -hmm. rehearsal, all ad-libbed off the cuff that night. He yeah. came up, and I remember sitting down, just looking up at him. The lightning is going, crashing like crazy. The thunder making huge noises, and it's all coming through these skylights. <laughs> You know, it's 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 lightning flashing, and he's giving this. Uh, I may I may get there with you. I've seen the top 
for them and i may but uh mm-hmm. i may not get that get there with you whatever right right I've heard almost that. foretelling what was about to happen and mm-hmm. i was just in chills like never before mm-hmm. with this whole scene of a church full of people every, every word going yeah yeah you know and and right. the lightning showing through and the thunder crashing and and the most powerful speaker perhaps ever is certainly mm-hmm. one of the best ever speaking just feet away and i was just how do i get to see these things Mm -hmm. and then the next morning he assassinated shot and kills Mm -hmm. and i was in this back in the studio i'd planned to go down to the lorraine and hang out Mm -hmm. uh, but the session was going and i couldn't leave so we get a phone call and everybody is just stunned everything stopped yeah Doc king has been shot and killed this is getting really bad you thought yeah this is Oh, my God, I couldn't difficult. believe it. And I told Al Bell, I've, I've got these photos. And he said he contacted Time magazine and they wanted the photos. And mm-hmm. at the last minute, I said, you know what? You can't have them. Yeah. I don't want them printed yeah. in, in Time magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. I don't know why, but I couldn't do mm-hmm. it. I mm-hmm. put them in box in a box for 35 plus years, nearly 40 years oh, wow. oh, and yeah. didn't even look at them, anything. Mm-hmm. There's just something about them. The whole thing was so deeply troubling and important to me, to my soul. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. couldn't do that. Finally, I got them out. I looked at them. And I said, well, I guess I'm over some of that. You know, and th- these could mm-hmm. be seen. They should they should be seen, really. It's right. part of a part, a small part of history. So yeah, yeah. so I did pick pick four. I really that were the best, I thought. And I display them now in my gallery shows or in museums and uh, right. and at the manninggallery.com website, of course, they're there. With, there's a, in fact, there's a new page that my management has kind of made me make, which the whole page of Memphis from 67 to 69, yeah, all black and white and all centered around the assassination for mm-hmm. and after things that mm-hmm. what it's just what life was like yeah the history what were white people purposes. doing what were black people doing right mm-hmm. yeah just what what did a restaurant look like what yeah. and, but still they were to me artistically taken photographs not intending right. for them to be shown 40 plus years later mm-hmm. this way it was just what i saw that day yeah uh, anyway it's just it's very bizarre how it's all yeah. happened Thank you for sharing that that night. So then when we when we see the photos of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we'll we'll be able to see and, and think about that the night you described with the lightning and the thunder and such. Yeah. Amazing. Ugh. Tara, you've given us so much of your time and uh and we still uh did not talk. You have several albums. You're also a musician in your own right. And you have several albums out. Uh, we don't have the time to go through all that. People can check that out on Apple Music, as Jim and I uh, stream Apple Music, search, and can find uh, nearly everything. You never can say everything. And I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll say one thing. Just don't go, ahead. don't go to Spotify. What's that? What? Don't go to Spotify. Use oh, Apple yeah. Music. <laughs> yes, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. prefer Apple Music. Yeah. Yeah. So uh so there there would be uh there would be another hour of photography that we could talk about. There would be another hour of just your own music that we could talk about. Uh Jim and I did some uh did some research, did some listening and
What's uh, just to say? What's your uh, latest project uh, uh, musically? Well, uh, if, if you I've to talk about it, yeah, no, I, I usually can't. I can't talk names of in advance of oh the yeah, band, yeah yeah. But I have a a great band out of Wisconsin that will be coming uh, to El Paso. It's a great mm -hmm. studio here called Sonic Ranch. I like to go track a really big room that, that they've mm -hmm. got and yeah. then i'll bring it back here for mixing and where you see here but yeah. uh a great band that we'll be doing in april i've also got uh another album of my own recorded mm -hmm. that i want to put yeah. out but i'm just waiting i don't feel like it's quite the right time yet but uh mm -hmm. i have uh two two albums in fact one is an instrumental album that's yeah. just a, yeah. a tribute to a tribute to tequila, a tribute to green onions, a tribute to whatever, not exactly copying, but, but yeah. tr making tribute to styles that, that, that when instrumentals were something, I love yeah. instrumentals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're not, too. they're never like that anymore. Right. So I've got that and I've got another vocal album, which has some sort of R and B ish type things and some rock things mm -hmm. that I'll hopefully maybe probably this year, I'll go ahead and get that released. Have you heard, speaking of instrumental albums, uh, Peter Frampton's album that came out last year? It's called. No, I, I haven't. I got the album last year. I got mm -hmm. the signed edition vinyl. Mm -hmm. And I, I just got a chance the other night to listen to it. Yeah. And it's, it's incredible. It, wow. It's called I Forgot. Oh, excellent. It's all instrumentals. I forgot yeah. the words. Yeah. It's a great and term. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and there's a Lenny Kravitz song on there. Are you going to go my way? Done, oh wow! Done okay. instrumentally by Peter but, Frampton. Yeah, cool. And he's got a great, wow. great I, bunch I will, of absolutely. Yeah, I will check this out. I love yeah, Peter. He's cool. a great guy too. Very, yeah. very nice guy. Yeah, I've seen him a couple times. Yeah, I've never met him, but so I assume you still do. You still play live music? Do you still? I know with COVID, it's a little. Yeah, I I was so. playing live up until COVID came. Okay. And I haven't played so for two years. I have not played live, mm -hmm. but okay. I'm about ready now. I. I mm -hmm. I love to play live. There's yeah. something special, yeah. as I'm sure you guys know. Yeah. When you mm -hmm. get on stage, even if you make a mistake, it's all good. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. fun. Yeah. So listeners can find you through your website, of course. Yep, you've Both mentioned two websites. of them. Yeah. And thank you yeah. so much for the time that you've given us and the yeah. stories. Uh, you know, my mouth dropped a couple times. Mouth dropping, <laughs> jaw, yeah. jaw dropping stories. I got so. chills with the Stevie Net, the mention of Stevie Net. Yeah, so, like oh. are you. Yeah, I look at I looked at Jim like is he making that up? That's Stephanie. I know, I know, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. The main theme of everything is that I've been extremely lucky, right yeah. place, right time. Mm -hmm. right. Just can't believe yeah. it, really. Yeah. And one more thing, Terry, just just personally uh, from me, it's you're you're straightforward. You're a go getter. You're persistent. You said leading the straightforward life, you know, that you mentioned, uh, you know, just and going and getting it. Uh, it's very inspirational. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoy yeah. talking to you guys. You have a great thank show you. and all fun. It's been a pleasure Anytime. and an honor. Thank you, Terry. Thank My you, pleasure, Terry. guys. Say have hello to New day. Jersey. Okay. okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
Today's interview was recorded on Zoom and at Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. Go to the YouTube channel for exclusive video content. Exit music by the band 99%. Today's show was produced and edited by Jim Thatcher. You can find Jim and Mike Talk Music on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The songs What the Use, I Ain't Got You, Let Her Dance, and West Texas Skyline. Use with permission from Terry Manning.